Hello and welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex von Tanzelman, I'm a historian and screenwriter. And I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and a consultant to film and television. Now the History Film Club, as you know, is a very exacting club. Uh, we only open our membership to people who really, really love historical film and television. That's, that's a, it's a brutal criteria for membership. Um, and today I'm very excited that we have, I would say, a proper national treasure. Uh, I'm delighted to introduce Stephen McGann. Uh, hello. Now, Steve, hello, Steve. Um, I'm a national treasure. Get I think me. you're a national treasure. I think Come you are. On. We I like to collect a... them at the History Film Club. Yeah, I think that once you start getting called a national treasure, you know, there's nothing much down for you. It's retirement <laughs> looms. That's it now. Once I reach, I, I'm like an old piece of furniture now. <laughs> Go on with you. Well, that's what we like in our club. <laughs> anyway, yeah. anyway, for anyone who is mysteriously not familiar with Steve McGann, uh, he's been on our screen since the 1980s. Uh, you may have seen him as Sean Reynolds in Brookside from 1999 to 2002. Ooh. But now many viewers will know him as Dr. Turner in Call the Midwife, BBC One. He's captured the hearts of a whole new audience in this wonderful historical drama. I mean, Call the Midwife is kind of a phenomenon. Uh, first series in 2012 was set in 1957 in Poplar, East London, following midwives uh, and nuns through sort of, you know, the difficulties of ministering to working class Londoners at that time. And it's been through an incredible nine series, I think, is that right? And we're now in 1965? It, we're currently filming the 10th. Yeah, we're currently filming number 10. Oh, so it's a decade's wonderful. worth. It's quite a journey. Yeah, it's an amazing series and it's it's a very surprising series. I'm at the stage now where, having spent a decade, which I, of course, I've never done before with anything, is you look back, you look at its legacy, it goes all around the world. I think the territories around the world itself, so something like 235 of them around the world. Now, there's this funny thing in TV where they have this 200 club, which if you get over about 200 territories, you're sort of in Doctor Who's league. You're in the big league. You're sort <laughs> of a, you know, basically you can go on holiday in South Africa and someone will go, ooh, it's that nice Doctor Turner, you know, and you get a shock. It's, and it's that level of, of recognition and, and, and legacy, if you like, of a series. But um, it's been quite a journey. And as you said in the intro, it's, um, what's interesting about Call a Midwife is we are exactly the same distance um, in the modern day from the history piece of Call a Midwife as we were at the very beginning. Call a Midwife moves in real time. Every year, it moves on just one year. So it doesn't jump around. It doesn't stay stuck in time. It actually moves through this absolutely huge period of British history. This, this era of social history from the late 50s to the 60s, where so much was going on, not just in health, but in society itself. And that's been a hell of a journey because with each year you open the medical books the historical research books and you go ah thalidomide now there's a thing now this came say for instance in 1961 and you say well we're going to have to do this we're going to have to look at this how will we do this how can this be handled and so ctm rather than something originally regarded as maybe uh, preserved in aspects, something fixed, is is actually a very movable series and moves with the times it's in. And therefore, the changes and the progressive changes in society are reflected in the program. It's the very opposite of maybe the original prejudice about it, which is, oh, it's nostalgia. It's stuck in this thing. Actually, the, rev 
universe is true. It's not stuck in one downstairs room or upstairs room or one particular era. It's moving through a very fast-moving era. So Alison Graham um, in the Radio Times describes Call the Midwife as a Trojan horse. And I thought that's a really nice way of encapsulating what Call the Midwife does, which is, you know, to smuggle in some very big social history stories within the smaller world that we become familiar with. And I think that is one of the elements that makes uh, Call the Midwife so powerful. But I do have a slight confession to make, uh, which is that I never watch it on Sundays. I watch it and, and I often watch it very carefully because I use it for my history teaching. But I never watch it live on Sundays because it's just so kind of emotional and, and sometimes painful. And it, it just finishes yeah. me off at the end of the weekend. Um, so I have to watch it out of sync with everybody else. Oh, but that, I didn't. I had no idea, Hannah. I'm very flattered first that, that, you're, that you're a fan of the show, but also you use it in teaching. We've heard this around the world, including professional teaching. There's a place out in rural India which uses our episodes to teach midwives, not solely to teach midwives, but used as we... And, and the, you get letters back like this. I mean, it's really humbling, that thing. But also, of course, you, you point something else out there, Hannah, which is um, when we started... Um, in 2012, it was still very much the ratings war, television as it used to be pre-Netflix. So we started out where lots of people did. I Player was there, so people could catch up. But still, it was the old world of repeats of usually watching live. But since we've been on, look at the TV business now. It's entirely um, fractured and separated. And the show and the people who make the show have also had to move through different eras of television. So the CTM that's being made now is in the Netflix world. It goes around the world. And so you watch it at a different time, as do, frankly, very many other people. You know, and that's interesting. And on the general point about Trojan Horse, I think CTM did one specific important thing for a history drama. It, it, it played with its own genre. It's era-defining, but it's not genre-signaling, I call it. What do I mean by that? What's Stephen talking about? Well, I think a lot of programs come on, and they come on in a certain slot. And if you're, we're all time poor now and information poor. And if we see a particular type of Edwardian drama or what they call bonnet drama, and it's on at a particular time of, of, of day, it signals itself quite quickly within 10 minutes of drama. So you know the type is it a a classic adaptation is it going to be this is it going to be that when ctm came on at 8 p.m pre-watershed on a sunday slot which was all very cozy after country file when it first turned up people thought oh it's um last of the summer wine it's it's comforting it's wine a glass of wine and fall asleep it's 20 minutes into the first episode somebody complains of having real terrible discharge from a venereal disease. So immediately before the watershed, something has happened when she talks about Trojan horse. What she's pointing out is that what we did from the beginning was kicked against the genre which we'd set up, which in some ways conformed to its slot, conformed to its thing, and then it kicks you in the teeth because it does something else. But I would say that when we started, television wasn't ready for that. And some people, critics, I would say, 
turned off in the first 20 minutes, presuming that it was what they thought it was going to be. And some of those critics, we took literally two or three years to get them to look back to see what all the fuss was about because they hadn't watched it in the first place and seen that what we also did right from the very beginning was to try and subvert through that Trojan horse. It, it's a Trojan horse for real social history as well. You can watch CTM and enjoy and entirely enjoy it on the surface level. Or the other things are actually locked inside there as well. And if you want to get engaged with those things, it, we will certainly engage with them, all of them throughout the history of the program. And that's what we do. I think that's what Alison was all about. Well, I'm definitely going to call it CTM now because it makes me sound like an insider. <laughs> hey, yeah, CTM. You're with all the so CTM. CTM people. Acronym <laughs> craze, um, Here I am, hanging, hanging out with CTM at the History Film Club. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the way, I mean, the way that I talk about it with my students, with my friends in the pub, basically with historians, with anyone who will listen, is the way in which it uses what we would call marginalised histories and puts them in the mainstream. So stories about histories of sexuality, histories of disability, histories of race, histories of just ordinary life and ordinary people. And But it puts it right in a kind of mainstream place, which is eight o'clock television, a Absolutely. massive audience. And, mm. you know, historians spend ages fretting about how can we reveal these stories? Why are they so underwritten? And yet The Call and the Midwife just does it week after week, series after series, you know, just right in front of this huge audience. And I think that's why it's such a kind of important um, piece of television making. The, the bottom line is it's Heidi. It's Heidi Thomas. It's it, it you know I I am obviously biased. She is my she is my <laughs> partner, but but the plain simple fact is that what's changed from here in different kinds of television is that Heidi has stayed very unusual in television now. Stayed as the author of the television series all the way through. She's a top writer in the country. She's got a, you know the writer of Cranford, the writer of Upstairs Downstairs. So she has a huge slate as regards historical drama. She came to a drama in peak television, a huge popular audience, and as a top writer, decided not to do what many writers do, which is stay with it, hand off to somebody else, go off and do something new. What she did was stay with it year in, year out through each of the changing periods as a labor of love, no pun intended. And she goes through, but with her strong authorial voice and her skill to do these things, to actually engage a very popular mainstream audience with some difficult things. It's craft a lot of the time and just good writing. We as actors can't control that. In the end, the material has to be there. And, and the production team are fantastic. Just one example of, of that astonishing achievement. Frankly, and I know I can say it and, um, amongst friends, which I believe we are, but you know, <laughs> I don't think she gets enough credit for that because if you take one example, you have um, historically the nature of backstreet abortion and its development as an issue towards the Abortion Act 67, 68. So we were in 1965 when we revisited it. Start, we've, we've touched on abortion pretty solidly as an East End theme throughout our program. We touched it heavily um, 
a year or two ago. Um, as we came up to, uh, it was last year, because we came up to 65, when the real, it came to a head, the, the disgust of the public with the effects of backstreet abortion, long before, interestingly enough, in a history sense with these two historians, long before the, the binary of pro-choice, pro-life was ever started. This, this goes before then. It wasn't a case of pro, it was literally, we were walking over corpses of women in certain places. Then the NHS was was being assailed by bodies of women with septicemia arriving on their doorsteps. So it was it was a manifest problem. Now, as we know, the United States of America and certain parts of the United States of America, um, abortion is still, unlike in, in, in Great Britain, a very, very live political issue. And in, in many ways, it's a more settled issue in Great Britain. So Call the Midwife is a program that goes all over the world, and it's loved in what we, in political terms, call red states in America. It's actually loved all the way through, in religious communities as well as in New York and in L.A. Now, if you consider that we can take a program, a popular program that's loved, and then introduce to them the difficult and complex histories of women and control of their bodies and how those evolved, say, not just in the East End of London, but all of the painful consequences, but in a human sense, played out through ordinary families, and then take it to our fan base in the United States, and go to them and present that as is to them, for whom it is a very, very live and often very religiously tinged issue. It's an astonishingly brave thing to do by the writer. And the the feedback we've received from those people is incredibly great. It can be often very difficult, but it's incredibly gratifying as well, because often people are made to confront things in a very human way, because this popular drama has brought them in to love it and then I said to him, well, do you trust us telling you these stories? Well, how about if we tell you this difficult, complex story? Will you still trust us? Have a listen and see what you think now. And that is an astonishingly clever piece of craft work. And that's the writer. Well, it's good that you still like her after a decade of working together it's and amazing. living together. <laughs> well, you know, Hannah, that, that the television process is funny, isn't it? Well, you know, that the best way to describe it is she's the boss. So she's upstairs. She's an executive producer. And and as and you guys like it's great. I'm glad, it's lovely to talk to you actually, Anna, because I know your your direct involvement as as an advisor on 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 films and television as well, which I think is for historians like yourselves is such a brilliant thing. I love it, I absolutely love it. I think it's really great to get you guys in to get interchange of those things. But you know that the pre-production process and the post-production process is something most people watching as an audience don't really can't really get there heads around. Now, I am on, the best way to describe, I'm on the shop floor. I'm like the factory worker on the actual mill floor. But Heidi's one of the bosses in the thing. So her big job is pre-production. Then when I go to film, she's never on set. So she doesn't visit where I visit. And then when I finish filming, she's all in the editing studios and post-production. So it's quite a complimentary thing. But in our house, it feels does feel like a bit of a cottage industry. It's very strange. But we have a lovely way where we can say, oh, how, would, how did it go in that meeting? How is that going in, you know, in, in, the, in the development of the new series? She can say, oh, how's so-and-so? I haven't been to set for ages. Are they all right? How, that, how did that scene film in? 
the end? Was it okay? And so there's this back and forth and it's a really, it's been quite a lovely experience. We will miss it terribly when it's gone because we last worked only once 25 years ago. And I, I am convinced we will never work together again. This is a one-off. So it's a really tender thing. It's a beautiful thing to do together. Speaking of the kind of romantic side, I do want to ask you, because Dr. Turner, of course, has been through this. I mean, before we had Fleabag and the Hot Priest, we had Turner (laughs) Dead. Turner Dead. All these fan videos cut together of, you know, of Dr. Turner. And as she was then, of course, Sister Bernadette. Um, And, you know, I mean, and and it must be fascinating. the Kitchen of Destiny, they call it. Yes. The Kitchen of Destiny. But I mean, you never as a wrist kiss oh, ever contains no. so much potential. Oh, it's got to be that, you know, but it's kind of better, isn't it? I mean, that's that it's the denied passion <laughs> is so much more powerful. But yeah. I mean, it, most, most actors do not get this privilege to live through a character for 10 years, through a period of history like that and through changing all of that. I mean, do you feel like you've kind of lived this history along with the characters? It's really a discovery. So much, again, so much of, of this period astonishes us with each new year. With the Offices for Health reports in Poplar, they're all available for free online through the, through the fabulous Welcome Library. You can see the actual reports every year of, of London, district by district. And so you have statistical sheets in there of how many cases, if there was a measles outbreak, how many cases of measles. So you can... You can divine stories from that. But one of the things I really love is before every report, each officer for health gives their rundown of the district and their feelings and their fears for the district at that particular time, the issues they were facing, the, 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 the worries, the hopes of the future, the future of housing in each district, because, of course, health is in the round. The privilege of having to look deeply, to have deep history, if you like, of a character, to go back and you can revive something between me and Sheila, an event, a scene in, say, series four. And Heidi will reference it and say, well, remember this. I'm going to bring this in. And you're going to have a relapse to that because you're going to think this. And, oh, wow. Okay. But because you've earned this sort of, you could call it compound interest of history that backs you up, you can use that going forward. You can use that in your work like any character actually working on the, any real doctor working on the ground would have to anyway. You know, so that's helpful. It's also an, an immense responsibility. There's a lot of what they call on those fan circles canon. There's a lot of canon out there now, you know, and a lot of fans who are willing to pick you up on the tiniest thing. We were doing a, one of the famous meal scenes in the Narca town, and it was about 1961. And, um, Heidi's looking post-production at this table scene. and She stops the, the, everybody in the studio and says, is that a piece of broccoli I can see on the table? And they said, well, yeah, sure. So broccoli didn't come in until 1965. They said, what? It is not. It's incongruous. And they said, oh, it's only a piece. It's a no. There's somebody out there who will know this. The Broccoli <laughs> Society of Great Britain will be will. on in 10 seconds flat. To, you know, we, we have complaints from people who collect prams of a certain era. People who collect, it's, it's unbelievable. And you know what we did? What we did to do that? We, in post-production, we were able to paint the broccoli white so it looked like cauliflower. <laughs> That's how we did it. But it's cauliflower. And we said, oh, I've got an idea. This is what we'll do. 
And sometimes, and if I can bear, if you don't give you, if you just tell you one more little thing. There was another great one, which is that when you've got all the little jobs worths who look for the tiny historical information that's wrong, um, sometimes they don't do their own research. Yeah, and there was one where they said, where some people, they don't even Google for 10 seconds before. If they're online, they'll go, huh, that's wrong, huh. You know, and they'll, because they're, they're looking to, to find fault before they're even looking to actually know if they're talking through their arse or not, if I'm allowed to say that. So there was, <laughs> yeah. a, 50s, um, there was, a, there was a 50s episode where one of, the, one of the ladies used a hairdryer. And he went, oh, her blow dry, handheld dryers in the 50s, you know. And about eight seconds later, I was able to send them a tweet to say, um, Google. You know, and there was like this huge list of these things. So they get things wrong. They just presume. And what's really interesting underneath that is that, and, you know, it's a rather bigger historical question. Uh, it widens out to something else, which is people's recency bias. And the way people view history dramas of any kind is really sort of suffused with people's own prejudices and bias, biases about what they think in the 1950s and 60s should look like on television, rather than what it might look like or what it might have been. One of the most famous ones with Call the Midwife was the washing on the line. It was a famous part of our street scenes. And lots of guys and people from the East End would say, that never ever happened. And then you'd send them photographs of exactly that happening. And they go, well, it never happened in our street. And say, well, that's not actually the way drama's made. That if it happened in your particular street, it's history. Or if it didn't happen, you know, but you could, you have to tread this line. But when they're going for the little tiny details, often they miss with our production, if you make a historical drama, something's going to get through, a mistake's going to get through. And every now and again, they're real howlers. You know, um, the famous one with Downton and a vending cup in a photograph. But any production knows deep down, you don't, you don't crow because you know you have them yourself because it could easily get through. One of our biggest howlers, which I don't mind talking about now because it was a bit hilarious, was after being historically so careful, we had this big publicity shot with the cast. We had to get in. And on this day, the Turner family couldn't make it. The, well, I could make it, but the members of my family, Sheila and the kids, couldn't be there through scheduling problems. And so they brought stand-ins, different actors to come in for the day to pose for this picture, who were basically Sheila's height, size, basically looked, and the kids to pose next to me for this thing. Later on, they were going to Photoshop the real family in. Guess who forgot to Photoshop the real family in? So basically, a picture of the Turner family goes out to national press with, with like, it's like the invasion of the body snatches. I've got this completely alien family of people who look totally <laughs> different passing as the Turners. And of course, all the production, we all have our head in hand say, how could this have got out? Did nobody notice the Turners weren't actually the Turners? And it went out to national press. It went into a national magazine. And all of these jobs worth that will spot the tiniest error, you know, incongruity. Missed it. Nobody complained. Everybody missed the glaring thing, which is the Turners have been taken over by aliens because they were too busy looking <laughs> at tiny, tiny little historical details. It's interesting what the audience focuses on and what they will miss. But back to that general historical thing, as I'm talking to historians, never ceases to amaze me how much our own 
recency bias, our own 2020 biases, even for medics, even for midwives who watch the show, permeate their perceptions of history where they go we'd never do that you said you did back then but you just don't know it and he said yeah but 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 that wouldn't happen because you said well actually we did ask this ourselves but it's not simply about what we're doing for accuracy but about the things that people watching in 2020 will accept of history what they think history looks like steve we like to ask all our guests on the history film club to nominate their favorite historical film or tv show to add to our club library what would you pick to be asked to name my favorite history film or tv piece was one of the hardest things i thought it would just be so easy but i love all history stories so i'm always into but i decided after a while that I would pick one which came slightly back at me from left field from a long time ago and that's the movie Amadeus because um, Amadeus 1984 was such an important um, history film for its generation because what was what was Amadeus about it was about flawed humanity it was a history piece about a, a genius if you like great composer and it brought the music of Mozart to a whole new generation. I'd studied a bit of music, but it brought popular music and the life of Mozart to a whole new generation. But much more interesting than that, as a history piece, it also made us think about the process of genius as a flawed thing about not holding on to heroes the way you think you should in an era of Morrissey. I think it's very important that we should put our, our geniuses into a kind of context. And I think Amadeus came along at a really beautiful time. The film itself really rubs up against, a bit like Call the Midwife does in its own way, it rubs against convention. It makes... Um, Amadeus Mozart, really quite an irritating child, quite a difficult character, but someone possessed of genius. And also, something I've always loved the film for, it's really a story of of Salieri, of a good, um, even very good composer, who then has to face the fact that he may be just mediocre. And it was this sort of love story to the mediocre I always found so touching, because... Without, without doing myself down, I think we're all a bit like that. I think really, if we identify with anyone in Amadeus, it's the Salieri's of the world. That's what most of us are. It's the people who try, but the world doesn't always reward you with a garland of genius. Humanity and history is messy. But I love that film as well, partly because of the kind of mad pink wigs that he wears all the way through. Oh, yeah. And I often use it to think about the different ways we can like layer up history in film and storytelling. And that, you know, Mozart is the kind of, he's like the modern take and he has these pink wigs and he sort of talks differently and behaves differently. And yeah. then he's set in this kind of 18th century world, which yeah. is what we would sort of regard as period perfect. So it's done very yeah. knowingly and it's telling you this is a kind of fictionalised take on this story, but it's, it's drawing you in in a particular way. And so it's a very clever... You know, kind of before Marie Antoinette and all of that, it was... um... Yeah, if one thinks of Kirsten Dunst and Marie Antoinette, it's very much that same thing. Um, I also think there's a really important element of which this is part of a particular type of history film. And it's worth giving them all a shout out as, as... as, as a contribution to the great history of historical film and television, which is what I would call the well-made play. This was a play, a great play, a Schaffer play before it was a film. And then it joins a tradition of great things like going back to the 60s of The Lion in Winter, 
um, William Goldman. You have A Man for All Seasons. Then you have, um, you know, so you have The Madness of King George. That often some of these great examinations of the human condition through history drama come from a theatrical examination originally. And I think it really helps to push the the form more to actually play with form a lot more because it ban it began in a different uh, cultural medium if you like and I think it's it's often a case if something had a life on the stage it can make a really good contribution to um to film fantastic Steve well I think we're definitely adding Amadeus to the history film club library um and I would also like you I'm afraid we also ask people to name a sort of pet hate, uh, the bugbear that gets you about whether it's a historical film or TV production or something you have to do on set or uh, what, what really gets your goat about historical film and TV? Uh, a recent issue drives me completely crazy. Mumbling. Actors mumbling. I am the oldest of angry old writer letter to the Daily Mail type guys when it comes to the subject of actors. I am absolutely old school. It drives the, the older actors I work with, the brilliantly trained older actors, totally round the twist. There is no excuse. Um, there's a famous joke about actors which has more than a grain of truth to it. Acting is basically just saying your lines and not bumping into the furniture. And if you do those things, that is sort of page one. And implicit in saying your lines is being bloody heard, right? Now, in recent years, and in many productions, not just history productions, certain types of approach have taken the view that if one personally doesn't feel it inside, then it can't be real to anyone out there, watching in cinema studios all the way across the world. If I don't feel it right here, right now, in, you know, mumbling into my navel, then it can't be real, therefore it's not valid. It's nonsense. This is a craft. The one of the, you know, that have been not naming names, but certain, more than one, there's more than one guilty party, but um, when I watch a historical piece and somebody comes up, sometimes amazing actors too, and somebody comes up and goes, it drives me around the bend and it happens too often. It should be a simple, basic um, commitment of people working in my profession to make themselves heard by the audience who are paying all this money. Oh, well, Stephen, I've heard people talk about that as mumble growl on set. That, um, yeah. I, as a historian, I'm going to ban all mumble growl. So I think that we can safely agree there'll be no mumbling at the History Film Club, don't you think, Alex? I think that seems very reasonable, Hannah. I'd also like to suggest that we introduce the Kitchen of Destiny <laughs> to the History Film Club. <laughs> the kitchen of Destiny must be yeah, there. Let's, have, kitchen let's of have a Kitchen of Destiny at the club now as well. Where, where, wrists, where nuns' wrists can be kissed in an erotic manner. <laughs> for television I mean, can do this before the watershed. <laughs> That's a whole. That's what we like to see in the club, isn't it? Really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Stephen. Absolute pleasure to talk to you and to talk about Call the Midwife and all these fabulous kind of contributions that that drama and you've made to history on screen. I think we will be delighted to extend an invitation to you to the History Film Club. Um, Alex, I speak on both of our behalves, don't I? Surely you agree. Oh, you do. Thank you. And and Steve, we do like to um, buy our new members a drink at the History Film Club bar. So what would uh, Dr. Turner like to drink? 
Dr. Turner would have a single malt whiskey. He would have a single malt whiskey um, from the island of of Harris, where they visited in the recent Christmas special. Uh, Li- yes. God, listen to this boy. Listen to him. <laughs> we will line one of those up for you. <laughs> Thank you. You're you're both absolutely gorgeous and marvelous, and it's a real privilege to talk to you. Oh, it's been a delight to have you on. And then um, we we look forward to welcoming you to the History Film Club. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to the History Film Club with Alex von Tundelman, Hannah Gregg and Stephen McGann. It was produced by Nat Tapley and Gloaming Productions. Subscribe to hear future episodes with Dan Snow, Amanda Vickery, Greg Jenner, Amanda Ray Prescott, Amara Thornton and many, many more. 